not all of us are going to be marching. Not all of us are going to be marching, and that's okay. Yeah. There are lots of roles to be played in educating our community about the issues that are re most relevant to them. Not just being in elected office, but the importance of being in appointed offices. That's right. Boards and commissions that are actually places where decisions get made for us, where our experiences uh, are absent. Welcome back to Danforth Dialogue, a podcast designed to unlock the wisdom of today's most influential leaders and empower the change makers of our future. Each month, Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, sits down with highly respected leaders to share stories of resilience and historic initiatives that have led to significant human advancements. Thank you for allowing us to invest in your leadership. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience. This month, we are at the 2022 annual convention of the National Medical Association in Atlanta to hold a special Danforth Dialogue Conversation of Significance with Ms. LaFonza Butler, president of EMILY's List, who will join Dr. Montgomery Rice to discuss the intersection between disparities in health equity amongst communities of color and the power of electing women who can influence public policy. Now for this month's episode of Danforth Dialogue, here is Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Welcome to Danforth Dialogues. As you all know, each month we bring you leadership insights from a wide range of guests, and today we have a double treat for you. First, I'm so pleased to be joined by Ms. LaFonza Butler, the first African-American president of Emily's List. And second, we are coming front to you from the 2022 National Medical Association Convention being held here in Atlanta. And many of the guests in the audience are attending the conference. So we are really excited to see all of the nation's female physicians and healthcare providers who are with us today for the conversation. LaFonza, let me start by thanking you for taking time and joining us in Atlanta for a conversation of significance. And I can't wait to hear your thoughts and insights on the public policy and the work that women who Emily's List has supported will join us in understanding how to improve health equity for communities of color. Thank you so much, um, Valerie. And it is, um, it really is just an honor to be here. It is the first time you and I spoke. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew that this was gonna be an exciting conversation because it was just you and I chatting over Zoom. That's right. Uh, and you know, in, in your mind, in, that in just our first meeting, you imagined this room. Uh, and so I'm excited to be here and excited to be a part of the conversation towards some real solutions for the communities that we all care about. Great. So before we get into the meat of the discussion, let's provide this audience, both in the room and on the podcast, with some of your background and your journey to becoming the first African-American president of Emily's List. I know a little bit about sure. being the first African-American <laughs> woman to do something. Uh, you know, it is, it's interesting. I was sharing with a guest earlier, my, my route has not been a straight one. Uh, I will say I was born and raised in a small town in Mississippi. 
I went to historically black college at Jackson State University. Two weeks after I graduated, uh, I finished my undergraduate work at Jackson State. I joined the labor movement. Uh, it wasn't because the labor movement was um, my orientation to social justice. It was, of course, being from Mississippi and having college professors who were SNCC organizers and mm. uh, uh, freedom riders. It was my orientation to social justice was the civil rights movement. But I was always convinced that the power of ordinary people um, could accomplish extraordinary things. And so I joined the labor movement as an organizer. I traveled the country um, helping uh, mostly women and women of color create power within their own workplaces mm -hmm. um, and form community uh, within themselves. And I did that for almost 20 years. Um, by the time I was 39 years old, when I left uh, the labor movement, I was the um, president of the second largest local union in the country. Um, I led the largest uh, labor uh, organization in California, uh, representing over a half a million workers who were home care workers, workers who, women who worked in nursing homes, uh, and uh, helped to you know, raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour for over 6 million Californians. Mm. I then, you know, I, I knew that by the time I turned 40, I did not want to be at SCIU anymore. It was uh, nothing of, about the work that I was doing. I did not get bored. There's still a lot of work to do on behalf of working families. I knew that my gift was required somewhere else. I just didn't know where. So I started to work then for um, now Vice President Kamala Harris as mm -hmm. she started to introduce herself to the country in pursuit of the office of president in 2019. Uh, I did that for uh, the year that she was in the race. I then ventured myself over into corporate America, uh, as uh, you might not expect. I spent uh, <laughs> a year uh, in, uh, at Airbnb okay. uh, in the space of uh, running their policy and uh, politics for North America. Um, and really wanted to, ex I joined and not from a place of judgment as one might expect, I joined uh, from, from the space of curiosity. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. could we actually figure out at the intersection of technology, government, and the one asset mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, for our community is the source of generational wealth? Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to be in that space. It gave me the opportunity to, to have Airbnb opened their first technology hub here in Atlanta, Georgia. It gave me the opportunity to bring HBCU endowments and pension funds to an IPO. Um, and, and so I really got to explore the space, that space. From and a, you did from all this by, by the age of 40? I did all of this before <laughs> I, I sure. 40. 42. Oh my goodness. Okay. All 42. Right. I, All right. I uh, just turned 43 and I became the first black woman to lead Emily's List after 37 years. Um, so, so, so let's talk about Emily's List. Yeah, let's do it. Because um, this is mostly African-American women here. We, we've heard of Emily's List. Uh, many of us have not necessarily thought that we were part of Emily's list. You know, the name is Emily. Uh -huh. We don't know her. anybody named Emily here. Anybody named Emily? So we didn't quite think that Emily's list was for us. So tell us about the work 
yeah. that's happening in Emily List for the last 35 years. And what are the priorities of the organization as you come upon, I think you have the 40th anniversary coming in 2025. You, you look, Dr. Montgomery Rice, you and I talked about this. Yeah. You know, it, it, Emily One is not a person, right? Uh, Emily is an acronym that stands for early money is like yeast. Yike. It makes the dough rise. That's right. <laughs> and for women who were breaking into politics in 1985 when Emily's List was created, the biggest barrier that women running for office faced was money. That's right. None of the guys believed in them enough to give them any, and so they were deemed uh, uh, irrelevant to electoral politics. Uh, and so Emily's List was created to be an organization, an asset for women uh, who wanted to run for office. And I think in the 37 years, there have been um, some ceilings, uh, some glass ceilings that have been shattered by the work of Emily's List, not just with uh, white women running for office, right, right. Um, but with uh, women of color running mm -hmm. for office. Mm -hmm. Senator uh, Carol Mosley Braun, right. um, elected and supported by Emily's List. Our very own vice president uh, has been supported by Emily's List since she first ran for district attorney in San Francisco. And Emily's List can and should have been doing better throughout the 37 years. And to your point, Dr. Rice, like what I am committed to doing is bringing my experience to Emily's List. My experience is very different than the founder of Emily's List. Mm -hmm. uh, I you know, did not grow up uh, as she did on the sort of you know, islands of the, of the East Coast. That's not my journey. Um, I did not um, spend my life in Washington, D.C. politics as my immediate predecessor, that's not my journey. Uh, I spent my uh, journey and my time um, with people who look like me, mm -hmm. with uh, people who have uh, the stories um, that I have experienced. I, I know the, the power of uh, a woman determined to get her three children through school on earning $9.25 an hour. I know her power and I know what she can do when there are systems that support her. And that's what Emily's List will do in the next uh, time that, uh, will the, with the time that I'm there, mm -hmm. when we celebrate our 40th anniversary, we will be celebrating a very different set of candidates and a very different set of accomplishments that represent all of what America can be. So you, you talk about the diversity. Um, and the diversity of our experiences. How does Emily List identify which women that they should support and really create what I would describe those bright spots, mm -hmm. right? Because there are a lot of women out there running for office and they are running because of their authentic belief in whatever advocacy they're pushing toward. How, do, how does Emily List select which ones are the bright spots? I will tell you how we have. Okay. And I'll tell you how we will. All right. How we have um, as an organization done a lot of work in traditional spaces. We've gone to the local chamber of commerce or we've gone to the local um, uh, law firms uh, mm -hmm. in, in communities. Uh, and, and we've talked to some of the uh, nonprofit associations that um, are in communities across or districts across the across the country, and I think that is one way. Um, when you continue to do things that way, you 
produce a certain type of candidate. And um, there are many other ways. Um, I, as, as, as I shared, I think there are, there's work to be done in communities like this, where you have never talked to Endless List, and Endless List has never come to speak uh, with you. There are you know, teachers and nurses all over the country who happen to be members of unions that um, are ready to fight for their community because they know those social determinants of health mm -hmm. uh, that are not just about give me a Medicaid card, but right. what's my housing like? What's my transportation like? Are there, is there, do I live in a food desert? When, when you are, are able to engage and build different kinds of partnerships, mm -hmm. then you're able, I think we'll be able to recruit and um, help to spur forward mm -hmm. different kinds of leaders, candidates, mm -hmm. uh, and champions for the communities that we care about. So you talked about the social determinants of health. I'm, I'm interested in your view on the key public policy initiatives that will impact uh, health equity in communities of color. Mm -hmm. How does Emily List identify candidates who are supportive of that and then also push forward those public policy initiatives? So it's important to note that what Emily's List has been uh, up until now is an organization that simply works to um, recruit, train, and help women candidates win. Pro-choice, pro-choice candidates actually win. Um, and I think it is, um, as we talk about what is top of mind from policy point of view, uh -huh. it's like look no further than just the discussion we were having at our, at our table over, over brunch. Uh, it is what is happening to women's right to make a decision about their own bodies in uh -huh. this very moment is uh -huh. an atrocity. Mm -hmm. um, and to advance uh, the work that is the uh, Women's Health Protection Act, or mm -hmm. to advance the work uh, that that um, are, are are pieces of legislation that are focused on improving climate, mm -hmm. uh, to move forward policies and support leaders like Secretary Marsha Fudge at HUD, mm -hmm. which we don't think about again in that so in those social determinant spaces. That is the work that we want to do, that we try to engage our candidates in at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. What does your community want in their candidate, in their champion? What are the issues that are, that are important in that district? And how do you identify with those? What mm -hmm. is your position on those? Because our belief is that the candidate who can articulate the most authentic experience and truthful policies and plans is the candidate that can earn the trust mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. of the constituents in their district and then hopefully trans translate that trust into votes. So you're, you're in a room with uh, healthcare providers, uh, lawyers, uh, persons uh, who have been in the public policy uh, sector, uh, whether they've been in the mayor's office or other spaces. How do we, within our circle of influence, support those women mm -hmm. who are running for office and make sure that that's aligned with the public policy initiatives that will do something that I think is important, improve the opportunities for women mm -hmm. to continue to have choice, mm -hmm. not just in the exam room, mm -hmm. but in the boardroom. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. look, look, the obvious thing, of course, is the thing that people always ask you for is your money and your vote. Vote for the person and contribute to their campaign. I will push us to think a little bit beyond that as well. One, 
Making sure that the person for whom you vote shares your values and the way, the be a simple way to do that, a simple and very hard way to do that is run yourself. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, and I'm sure that there are folks in this room who have thought about it and pushed it back to the back of their mind, who thought about it again and let somebody else talk them out of doing it, uh, who thought about it again and decided that, no, I'm just going to put all of my energy behind this other person. Mm. Um, and so I, I want us to think about, the, the, again, the power of our own experiences and the agency that we have to bring those um, dreams to life for our neighbors uh, and in our community. So running for office, one. Two, you know, <laughs> Dr. Montgomery Rice said something at our table. Um, that that I off that a sentiment that I share, and you will find this contradictory from my past. Uh, not all of us are going to be marching. Right. Um, not all of us are going to be marching, and that's okay. Yeah. There are lots of roles to be played to in educating our community about the issues that are re most relevant to them. We were talking and sharing at, at our table about not just being in elected office, but the importance of being in appointed offices. That's right. That's right. Um, boards and commissions that are actually places where decisions get made for us, where our experiences uh, are absent. So running for office, making sure that you examine all of the ways that you can educate your community and bring uh, and bring them uh, along. And then I, again, will not, I don't diminish at all. I in, encourage us all to march and shout as loudly and as proudly as we can. It matters when we are present. However, right. being present shows up for you. And we know that that sometimes is in a room with people who are not like-minded. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I learned this a long time ago and many people in here would say, I'm still learning it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to use a different voice in order to get people's attention such that they hear you when you speak. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I know the women in this room understand exactly what I mean. Mm -hmm. So we're at this time in the country when we have the first woman mm -hmm. to lead Emily's List, African-American mm -hmm. woman. We have the first African-American woman to be the vice president of the United States. We have the first African-American female Supreme Court justice. Why is it important that African-American women are fully represented in the national discussion, not just around health equity and maternal health and all the things that we are passionate about, but other things, like you said, all of those social determinants which influence our community? Plainly put, Dr. Montgomery Rice, and I feel very comfortable saying this uh, and, and being factually correct, because we are the backbone of this nation. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, whether it is from a historic perspective, taking care of children, uh, whether it is uh, as, as sort of history moves forward, um, finding our places in education or in nursing, it is the fact that black women have indeed been the backbone of this country. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I, I remember some of my most influential teachers, I'm sure all of you do as well, being black women, 
Mm -hmm. And so why is it important that we are in spaces of authority mm -hmm. uh, as well as influence? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we need to be. Yeah. It is, it is our energy and spirit that has brought this country through many movements. Right. Um, when in the suffrage movement, black women were told, yes, you can be in the parade, but you have to be in the back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we are now in a place where we are fighting for a third wave feminism and the, and the right for women to have the, continue to have the freedom mm -hmm. to make decisions about our own bodies. And we better well be in the front of the parade. Mm -hmm. um, our voices, our stories, our experiences, we are unrelenting and bringing our communities together. We are capable problem solvers. Mm -hmm. We lead with the integrity and empathy that is required to bring uh, communities uh, forward and actually get to solutions. Some of our, the nation's strongest champions on all of the things that we all care about are women and women of color. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be there because we need to get the job done. So let's get a little more granular. We have several federal health public policy initiatives that we should be supporting. Mm -hmm. And how do we have more of a open conversation about them? And how do we uh, get support mm -hmm. and get support from them from unlikely bedfellows? Mm -hmm. It's all of the things that we that we talk about. Like, let's name some some uh, legislation and um, spaces of public policy that are that are relevant. We've talked about the Women's Health Protection Act. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's look at the comprehensive suite of bills that are that are comprised in the Momnibus mm -hmm. legislation um, and the issues and work that is happening in the spaces of maternal health and Black maternal health uh, in in particular. We wouldn't be in the space of moving these pieces of legislation, mm -hmm. um, but for the quality research, honestly, that, that has been done in our academic community. That's right. Uh, and the capturing of that data and putting forward actual solutions that are practical and that can be accomplished um, and scaled uh, in uh, an incredibly important way. So, so not losing sight of our of our contribution as academics, I mm -hmm. think is incredibly important because that is the base upon which all of our public policies and legislation uh, is is built. So that's that's and, one. And, and I know and that's let me, let me, let me, that let me check. Yes, because, you know, I, I, I think people don't always recognize when, when the Affordable Care Act was coming about one of the things that we kept pushing for is the demographic information. Mm -hmm. We needed that data mm -hmm. to be disaggregated so that we knew mm -hmm. by zip code, mm -hmm. by race, ethnicity, and gender. That sort of was the foundation for us for all of the data analytics mm -hmm. that's going on now, being able to cut and slice that data. Mm -hmm. That is what led us to understand the disproportionate amount of maternal mortality mm -hmm. that we were seeing. Because see, the numbers, the, the total numbers of women that die is not in the thousands, but if one dies, it's too much. But when you start to really break it down by zip code and race and county, then you start to understand the systemic challenges that influence it. Mm -hmm. And we can't, you know, we, you were, we were talking about in one of the previous questions, what can we do? 
that academic work should not be uh, discounted. Yes. Uh, it cannot be discounted. Mm -hmm. I endlessly can do all of the work that we want to elect this person or that person, but if we don't have the practical solutions that really does stem from the work uh, in our academic institutions, we, we are really, really missing out. Uh, and, and I think, so, so that academic work as a foundation. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I think we have to be really um, raising our voices in support of those who are championing mm -hmm. the policies that improve the lives of, of our community. Mm -hmm. We uh, talk a lot about Vice President uh, Kamala Harris and her work to bring Black maternal health to the White House in the first summit right. um, mm -hmm. that, that, that happened. And we've got to have her back when they talk about her wearing a blue dress or mm -hmm. a blue suit. Mm -hmm. Like we can't, we can, we can celebrate her all we want when she does the thing that we want and we got to have her back. It's a both and. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when we, when, when we have uh, women like Terry Sewell from Alabama, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, who is, you know, a part of the maternal health caucus, Mm -hmm. um, and Lauren Underwood, these have got to be the champions that we lift up, not just at the dinner table in casual conversation. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love me some Terry. Mm -hmm. We gotta, we have to show Terry that we have her back mm -hmm. in a meaningful way. Or Robin uh, Kelly, who is, you know, really Robin Kelly. doing a lot. I was with her last week and, and talking with her about what is it that she needed? What data does she need mm -hmm. for Morehouse School of Medicine? Our Center for Maternal Health Equity is run by Dr. Natalie Hernandez. And mm -hmm. what information can we provide to you mm -hmm. such that when people are questioning, questioning the why, yeah. we can give them the accurate data, which reflects down to the zip code where we see these challenges and the systemic factors yeah. that, that prevent us from being able to turn things around. And I, I think that is, that's another asset that mm -hmm. we often um, undervalue. Just mm -hmm. that point around information and mm -hmm. research. We, we, these, these women are not super women. They didn't start off with a lot of them, you know, you know, upper graduate degrees, what they need. And they don't, and they have like thousands of things coming at them on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we have information and we know that we have the connection, we can say, hey, uh, Representative Kelly, Here's some things that we think that actually might right. be might be helpful to you mm -hmm. uh, and helping them to find those solutions. I think that's incredibly strong mm -hmm. and important point that that you're making, not just to sit on the asset, but to share the asset. Right. And, 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 and a lot of times I, I find that people are um, they they feel that that they are not necessarily uh, empowered. Yeah. But, you know, these people are elected mm -hmm. by us for us. Yeah, right? That's right. And so we have to go and visit mm -hmm. and sit. And sometimes you only get to sit with their chief of staff That's or right. their policy person for the day, but you get to leave the information. Mm -hmm. And they will remember when you bring information to That's them right. about a subject that is dear to them. And we can ensure then that our voices are being heard. That's so talking about voices being heard, <laughs> part of Danforth Dialogue is talking about leadership mm -hmm. and leadership insight and lessons. Tell us one of your biggest leadership lessons mm. that you have experienced. Mm -hmm. um, one that, that always sort of sticks with me is always negotiate from a position of power. Ooh, like that. Um, so often as women, as women of color, often we are the only one of us in a room. 
And so we engage a discussion from a space of lack. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, whether it is a job opportunity, whether it is uh, just trying to figure out the network that you are trying to facilitate, just you know, remembering that you start with your own power. Um, for me has just been an incredibly important reminder for my leadership as I navigate this now very new space that is that is endlessness, being, mm -hmm. being confident and comfortable in my own power. Yeah, and I will always tell people this, that <clears throat> you have to have your personal board of advisors, mm. and some of mine are in the room, and so, you know, they have known me when. <laughs> And they're the ones who I don't even say hello when I pick up the phone, yeah. right? I'm like, girl, yeah. let me tell you. Can you believe what you think? And then I don't have a lot of time for a whole bunch. I'm going to have time to give you a lot of background, right? I just need some perspective right now so I can make it through the next couple of hours. And I always advise women, have this personal That's board right. of advisors who are not too impressed with you, That's right. okay? That's right. They just need to be able to tell you That's right. the real deal. Um, so what is your message to the next generation of African-American leaders, women leaders? Um, you know, the, the thing that I appreciate that my mother and um, my college professors uh, the, the people who have my eighth grade English teacher, I, I, what I appreciate and carry with me um, is uh, that is advice that I would share for the next generation. And all of them in their own way um, said to me that it is uh, that every one of us, um, when it's our turn to stand, Ooh. need to do so. Ooh. Um, and it, I mean, there's so much in that, right? It is. Justice and Coretta Scott King said, remind, gave, gave us this advice, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, justice is not won, uh, it's never really won, but it's fought and earned in every, every generation. generation. Uh, and so, you know, the, ex, the, 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 we should, we don't have the expectation that something is going to be perfect all the time. Mm -hmm. We have the expectation that we are going to fight to make it perfect every time. Mm -hmm. um, and so that would be my advice. Don't get so discouraged that mm -hmm. you wind, that you land yourself in despair. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that discouragement can indeed be motivation to mm -hmm. make it better for the next, for the generation that is mm -hmm. coming next. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think about LaFonz, I think about as I give advice to young African-American women, I say to them, they are milestone moments to influence. And everybody has a season. And, and when you are early on in your educational experiences and you're trying to make it through Georgia Tech, you're trying to make it through Harvard, you're trying to get to that next degree, that may not be your time, you know, to have the black power sign up. It may be your time to focus inward mm -hmm. and get the credentials mm -hmm. and the credibility that allows you to sit at the table and have that voice. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes our young people are anxious for everything to happen. Yeah. Uh, patience is clearly a virtue, and it is something that uh, takes time mm -hmm. to uh, experience. Mm -hmm. And I know all of us need to experience it. 
So as we began to get ready to open it up for the audience for questions, what would one thing would you like for us to know about Emily's List that will push us to be more engaged? That it is for you. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that my presence being here is not the simple transference of that of that knowledge. Um, but I do want you to know, uh, get to know the organization, watch us over time, uh, and know that it is an organization that is that is and can be an asset for all of our dreams uh, and hopes. Uh, and uh, that it is a place that is, you know, if we, it is easy for us to say, or it would be easy for us to say, oh, LaFonza, we're at, 22% uh, women elected to Congress, um, or we're at 33% of women elected in state and local government. Hasn't Emily's List done its job? Shouldn't we be done with an organization like Emily's List? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. When we sit today and we have still not elected a single black woman governor of any state in any this state. country. When we sit today and there is not one single black woman in the chamber of the US Senate. Not one. Um, and mm -hmm. so, so what I would offer you um, for consideration as we end our time and open up for questions, consider that Emily's List is your organization too, that you too are Emily, even if you don't know anybody named Emily. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So please. Join me in thanking LaFonza for joining us. On behalf of Morehouse School of Medicine, our wonderful guests who were present in the audience today with me, thank you, LaFonza, for joining us today on this special Danforth Dialogues Conversation of Significance. I believe we've all gained a great deal of new uh, initiatives into the healthcare public policy landscape. Uh, politics as they are in the country today, and equally important, the impact on communities of color and what we need to do about it. We close each of our podcasts with three final thoughts. Today, I would like to close with three things leaders should do to foster good partnerships. First, good partnerships are grounded in a common vision. The partnership will fail if the partners don't all see the same future and the same goals. Second, good partnerships are built on an invincible commitment to joint success. Great leaders understand that in good partnerships, it's all in for the win. It's the partnership success, not the partner's success. That should be the priority. And finally, leaders recognize that good partnerships endure because they create an impactful legacy that supersedes the partners. If successful good partnerships induce positive change that lives on, it is that successful good partnership that will make things move forward. We've seen that at Morehouse School of Medicine and our More in Common Alliance, where we partnered with Common Spirit Health to open up 
five regional medical campuses, and 10 graduate medical education programs that were focused on underserved and rural communities. So 25 years from now, when we're thinking about what do we do about the lack of black males or underrepresented minorities in medical schools, you will understand that we forged ahead, not waiting for others to make decisions for us, but making decisions for ourselves in partnership with others who had assets that align with us. Values, mission, and vision. And with that, we end today's Danforth Dialogues. Thanks to everyone for tuning in and always, we wish you good health and great success in all you do. This has been a presentation of Danforth Dialogues with Morehouse School of Medicine CEO and President, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information, please contact us at danforthdialogues at msm.edu.